Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman, and I'm flying solo again today. We're hoping that Tim Pinot will rejoin us very, very soon. Uh, but we are very fortunate to be joined by another Tim today. Mm -hmm. uh, so filling the role of Tim is Tim, Dr. Tim Herzog, um, who is a licensed psychologist in Virginia and a licensed clinical professional counselor in Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Montana. He works with athletes nationally and internationally, and his practice, Reaching Ahead, is located in Annapolis, Maryland. Dr. Herzog is a fellow with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and serves on the organization's ethics committee. He's a certified mental performance coach, is listed on the US OPC Sport Psychology and Mental Health Registries, and is board certified in biofeedback. Mindful of the power of relationships, he conducts evidence-based practice, pulling from cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and mindfulness-based approaches, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and interpersonal process. Dr. Herzog also pulls wisdom from his years of coaching, notably having served as head coach of the Boston College sailing team from 2001 to 2002, when the team placed fifth at ICSA co-ed nationals and received four All-American honors, which was more than ever before in Boston College history. Um, as a quick aside as well, Tim is amongst the leadership team uh, for the Mid-Atlantic Consortium for Sport and Performance Psychology, which is how he and I have really gotten to know each other over the last couple of years. It's this great yeah. um, group that we formed in the, in the Mid-Atlantic area. Um, and so, Tim, really, really excited to have you on the podcast. We've talked about doing this for a while, so glad that this worked out. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so before we get into uh, our discussion... Uh, you were kind enough to uh, agree to lead us in a brief practice just to get us started today. Yeah, you bet. So, um, you know, with my bio, you mentioned uh, my interest in, in biofeedback. And actually, one more thing I'll add to my, my uh, bio moving forward, I guess. As of yesterday, I was elected to the board of the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback. So super excited about that. Wow, congrats. Um, That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So I often integrate principles of mindfulness with psychophysiology or, or biofeedback. Um, and so a breathing exercise that I regularly tune or turn to is paced breathing, right? And, you know, I, I think of the breath in two respects, right? There's the, the architecture of the breath, but then there's the pace of the breath. Um, and so in terms of the architecture of the breath, and, you know, I think we can kind of get into meditation mode while I, I simultaneously, you know, share some insights here, but we can think of the, the architecture of the breath such that, you know, we have our, our most optimal gas exchange into the bloodstream when we manage to fill the diaphragm, right? And so, if, you know, I often refer to this as homemade biofeedback. If you put a hand on the chest, and a hand on the belly, right? Then with each inhale, you can allow yourself to feel your belly fill like a balloon. In each exhale, you can feel your belly fall towards your spine. And you wanna allow, one, you, you, you wanna have decent posture with this because if you're hunched over, you're not allowing the oxygen to go all the way down to the bottom of your lungs for that optimal gas exchange. 
So you wanna have your head more or less in alignment with your spine down to your tailbone. So it's an upright posture, it's not rigid or anything. And we're on camera right now, so you can see that my chest hand really isn't moving at all, right? My chest and my shoulders are loose and still. Now the belly rises and falls. And you can do this also with, you can put a, a pair of books on, on your chest, you know, one on your chest, open-faced, another one on your belly, if you're lying down or reclining. The idea is that we're gaining a much better awareness of the breath filling the belly and then exiting. And while the mechanics of all of this are pretty important, we also wanna seize this opportunity to be mindful of the process, noticing how it feels as that, that top hand is stationary and as that bottom hand on the belly rises and falls, you can notice the feeling of your fingertips against your belly. As it goes up with inhale, and it's a normal inhale. Sometimes I, I find Folks will, you know, start doing sound effects or really get into it where they're like, you know, on their inhale or, you know, they, they try to go big and it's just a normal inhale, right? Your body will take in what it needs. And then it's nice long exhale. And as we inhale, we can do that through the nostrils. Again, allowing yourself to be mindful with it. Are you noticing the sensation of cooler air coming in around the edges of the nostrils? And then you can exhale either again via the nostrils or oftentimes it can be nice to have pursed lips and exhale via the lips in a way where we allow ourselves to have an exhale that's much longer than the inhale. So around four seconds on the inhale, and you can even count in your head. One, two, three, four as you inhale. And then one, two, three, four, five, six as you exhale. And if you have pursed lips, you can tune into the sensation of the breath leaving such that it's a steady flow. You know, if you ever blow on a candle such that you allow it to flicker without going out, it's the same kind of breathing where it's just a steady, you know, again, no sound effects needed or anything, but, but you know what I mean, right? where you just let it flicker from that steady, long exhale. And it's a longer exhale than most people are used to. So that's a, a little bit about the architecture of the breath. And I touched on the pace of the breath. And I find it's much easier to end up having paced breath when we do it with a pacer, right? And there's, there's several apps out there that you can use for this purpose. Um, Part of why I like using a, a pacer 
and, and breathing at around four seconds in and six seconds out is that our heart rate ends up following our breath. So, you know, with, with sensors, we can see biofeedback sensors, whether it's on my ear or my fingertip or maybe on my chest, you know, I'm able to see as I inhale, my heart rate goes up. As I exhale, my heart rate goes down. Right. So it accelerates with inhale, it decelerates with the exhale. And when we have that nice long exhale, heart rate starts to get really rhythmic where there ends up being a big difference between the peak and the valley. Folks often think, oh, my heart rate, it's 60 or 70 or whatever it might be. And they think it's a constant. But in actuality, it accelerates it decelerates, it goes up, it goes down, and we want there to be a big variability. So maybe it goes from 55 up to 70 and then down again, or maybe it's an even bigger difference. And in a lot of respects, I'm less concerned about what the heart rate itself is, right? Whether we're talking about 55 or 85, I'm less concerned about that than I want to see those nice big ups and downs. I want to see it be rhythmic. Because when we achieve that, and when it's in sync with the breath, people tend to feel much more mentally calm and at the same time, physically alert. Essentially, we're getting the, the sympathetic and the, ner- and the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems uh, working in harmony. Um, the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for amping up. You know, that happens with the inhale, the parasympathetic nervous system is for calming down the rest and digest, you know, and that happens with the exhale. So now let's, let's take just a couple minutes to continue breathing with that same architecture I was talking about. You can even, if you removed your hands, you can put them back on your chest and your, your belly and do it in conjunction with the pace. But I'm going to use the, the pacer on my phone. I happen to like one called Cardia Deep Breathing. I have no affiliation with the company or anything but it's called K-A-R-D-I-A, deep breathing. Uh, I look for the purple K icon when I find it. And I put the settings at four and six. If I haven't assessed what somebody's optimal pace is, six breaths a minute tends to be in the ballpark. And so as we hear the, the tone go up, we'll inhale. As we hear it go down, we'll exhale. yourself to continue to be mindful with how the breath feels even while being guided to go at this more precise pace. Sometimes as we're breathing we can kind of notice especially if we have a hand on the chest or on the abdomen we might notice our own heart rate. We can actually feel the beat. And so you might notice as you exhale, it going down. Now as we inhale, it going up, decelerating, 
accelerating as we inhale. And so you can keep breathing at that pace. Ideally, I, I like to do a 20 minute session at a time. And the research protocols have people doing this twice a day for 20 minutes per session, which is a huge commitment. So I'm often doing some negotiations with my clients and I'll accept whatever they're willing to commit to. And anecdotally, I find that whether it's 10 minutes twice a day, or maybe it's, you know, 20 minutes, not as mindfully as maybe we're watching TV or driving, right? Not looking at the pacer while we're driving, of course. Right. And then the other, the second session is maybe the mindful session. Right. Whatever we can commit to, some kind of goodness is going to come from that. But the research protocols have people doing it two times 20 minutes a day. And ideally, both sessions are mindful. And the research protocols have people doing this for 10 weeks. And it has huge impacts on mental health, on anxiety disorders, on depression, on cardiac problems, on a slew of both physical and, and mental disorders. Um, but there's also some literature too that shows us that when HRV or heart rate variability is, is bigger, that we have better situational awareness, right? So I think of that as being like, being able to take in a whole bunch of stimuli at once while simultaneously tuning into whatever is most important right here, right now. And so having a flexible attention. And so as you keep moving forward in your day, maybe think about what is your intention? What are you willing to commit to with your breath practice? or you know your own variation on a mindfulness practice, hopefully incorporating good architecture in your breath and good pacing in your breath. And see if you can do another session today or you know, maybe starting with one or two tomorrow and see what you can commit to on a daily basis and notice what the long-term trends are. Notice if your anxiety levels go down, if your situational awareness improves and maybe even physical health improves, whether that's, you know, pain becoming less intense or whatever it might be. Oh, Thank that's you. very cool. Thank you, Tim. You bet. I appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate the way you kind of talked through all that too. I think that's super helpful. And, um, you know, I, I, one of the big things that I wanted to talk to you about today, um, we were fortunate enough, we did a really interesting ass panel a couple of, was it two years ago? talking about the, the potential marriage or integration of biofeedback and mindfulness and, and mm -hmm. how that can be a little bit of a, I guess, a debated topic, you know, how, how can these things fit together? Um, but I think from that exercise, it's so clear in your language and how you can work with this, how you can fit them together really, really nicely. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about that. I think you, you did a great job as you were going through explaining how, how they can work together. Um, but what is, what is sort of your underlying approach to that, your underlying thinking on, on how they, how they can synergize. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think 
if you hook up to any form of biofeedback, right, whether we're looking at heart rate or heart rate variability or respiration or even skin temperature or skin conductance, which is sweat or EMG, muscle tension, right? You, you quickly notice that if you are striving, if you're, if you're really trying to make it happen, right? If I'm trying to raise my skin temperature, or trying really hard to reduce my muscle tension or, or whatever it is, it backfires, right? Paradoxically, we actually end up having colder hands, right? Or sweatier hands and so on, right? We become more dysregulated. Um, and so I often think of biofeedback as in a sense being mindfulness on steroids, <laughs> right? It, it gives us a focal point as we're being mindful to know more quickly, I'm either being mindful or not, right? Like if we're sitting on meditation cushion or however we approach it and say we're tuning into our breath or that's the goal and our mind wanders, you know, part of the practice is gently guiding your attention back to your breath, right? But you might find that like, whoa, I, I've been all over the place for the past 10, 15 minutes. And then I managed to bring it back, right? Whereas with biofeedback, you're getting constant feedback to let you know you're on target or you're not on target, right? And, and as you let go where it's, it's no longer this active striving, um, you know, but rather it's an allowing, right? then you can find that it's, it's easier to allow your attention to go back towards these various kinds of self-regulation. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Mindfulness on steroids. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. That's and, and, and I think it, you know, it fits really nicely with athletics too, right? Because we often see that same paradox in athletics where if people are trying too hard, right. If they're really focused on an outcome, for instance, right then it falls apart. Whereas if we engage the process and we're, we're mindful, we're present with the process and we, we allow the process to unfold, then as a byproduct, that good outcome is more likely. Mm -hmm. It's something that's always fascinated me and why for a long time I'd seen the synergy too, is it's also taking, you know, mindfulness. Obviously I love mindfulness. I work with it all the time, but admittedly it can be sometimes a nebulous concept. And, and when you marry it to biofeedback, you can actually in real time see the physiological impact of, mm -hmm. of what you're doing. And 100%. I, I imagine too, I, so I, I don't work with biofeedback the way that you do, but I don't know if you could speak at all to what it's like for your clients to see that, you know, to, to in real time, just see how they can begin to affect, like you, you gave this great example in the exercise of heart rate. You know, I, I feel like that feel when the first time you mentioned that to someone that must be like, what? <laughs> You know, how can that actually work? And then yeah. lo and behold, you show them like, wow, this, this is something I can, I can it's work empowering. with. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes with performance issues or anxiety or, or mood for that matter, right. A lot of this can feel out of our control. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of, part of mindfulness and acceptance practices are often, you know, just that acceptance it's, it's working to, to uh, accept, uh, to allow for what is out of our control. Um, and at the same time, I feel like, you know, biofeedback is about directly influencing what maybe 
before felt like it was out of our control, you know? And so it's not necessarily control, right? But it's not full on acceptance either, mm-hmm. right? It, I feel like it's kind of a nice middle ground. And so, yeah, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had a client come in the door and be like, oh, yeah, 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 the breathing thing. And, you know, <laughs> whether it's an internal eye roll or, or mm-hmm. visibly, right? Right. They're, they're like, yep, I've been there, done that, right? And, and there's, a, there's a total lack of buy-in. It feels like a, a woo-woo, you know, technique that is not going to be helpful to them in any which way. But then you hook them up to biofeedback. And I'm thinking particularly heart rate variability biofeedback, but you can see it with other modalities too. And when they see, right, that, wow, you know, when I am mindful with my breath, you know, when I pace my breath, or heck, for that matter, even if I'm just uh, allowing myself to uh, generate more neutral or, or positive thoughts, check that out. My heart rate variability all of a sudden is dramatically affected where I can see moment to moment, it's getting more rhythmic. Uh, it's getting bigger between that peak and the valley, you know? And not only that, I can feel the difference almost instantaneously. You know, I, I gave a workshop just yesterday um, to a, a group of musicians at Morgan State University. And, you know, it, it was, it, it's always entertaining when I weave biofeedback into a, a presentation, right? I will, and I do this with my clients day to day too. I, I will, uh, hopefully after a little bit of rapport building, you know, actually intentionally stress somebody out. And you can see it on the screen. And part of why I do that is because we want to take the catastrophe out of being stressed or anxious, right? And recognize we do have some influence over whether or not we're going in the stress and anxious direction or the self-regulated and feeling good direction, right? And so from there, I'll say, okay, now focus on your breathing, you know? Allow yourself to have nice long exhales around four seconds in six seconds out. You can count in your head, you know, and then we use the pacer. So we on their own, we can already see it getting much more rhythmic. And then with the pacer, we see it get even bigger and more rhythmic. And, you know, you go from being pretty stressed out as, as my guinea pig yesterday experienced (laughs) up on stage, right? You go from being, kind of stressed out, you know, maybe he had a good sense of humor about it, but uh, from that state to very quickly being in a state where um, you, you know, it's not euphoric or anything, but you just feel centered and you feel uh, resilient for whatever stress that could then come your way. Yeah. I love that. Well, and I think, I think, you know, what, what it's getting at too is, you're not trying to eliminate stress, right? You're working with a group of performers. Stress is inherent in being a musician and being an athlete. And, and I love, you know, what you're trying to do is, is help people like, you know, demystify that and then realize, okay, like this can happen and I can work with it a little bit, which I think is a very mindful philosophy, right? You're just teaching a concrete strategy for how you can do that. Yeah. Stress and anxiety are not catastrophic they become more catastrophic if we regard them as catastrophic, you know, but in and of themselves that they're not bad and they can even be conducive to performance. And so I'm often working with people on just an awareness, you know, back to the inverted you, you know, 
how amped up are you? You know, or are you somewhere on the, you know, if you, I, you, you may have talked about the inverted U on this program before. I don't know. I don't know if we've talked about, I, we, we've certainly talked about arousal quite a bit. I don't know that we talked okay. about that, that theory, but I know it's, it's fairly well known, but if you want to say a little bit about it, that's fine. Sure. So, you know, if you picture a simple graph where on the, the Y axis, you have performance and on the X axis, you have how amped up somebody is. Um, you know, if somebody is on the left part of the curve, right? So it's an upside down U curve. If they're on the left part of the, the curve, uh, maybe they're overly bored or sleepy, right? And performance isn't impossible, but it's a lot harder, right? And if they're over on the right side of the curve, well, then maybe they're overly angry or anxious. And again, performance isn't impossible, but it might be harder, you know? And somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot. And everybody's individual U-curve looks a little different. So I'm often working with people on mapping. What does your U-curve look like? Uh, and, and so that we can make a point of trying to get there intentionally while at the same time being accepting of, of wherever we are to some degree. Hmm. Um, you know, so maybe a six is ideal, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, zero being asleep, 10 being a panic attack, right? So maybe a six is ideal, but as we map it, we recognize like, okay, so for you, if you're at a, you know, somewhere between a four and a six, that's more optimal than if you go over the edge in the other direction where you're at a seven or an eight. So let's work on if we're going to err a little bit being on the calmer side, hmm. you know? So to the, to the extent that we can influence it, great. And at the same time, being mindful and accepting of whatever's there. Yeah. Well, and I imagine too, once, once you've done biofeedback for a little while and you can recognize those physical signs of what level you're at now, it's not an arbitrary six, but it's actually, okay, I can feel my heart. I, I have a sense of what this looks like and how I might be able to lower my arousal or raise my arousal as appropriate. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I think of biofeedback as, you know, to use another metaphor, not just steroids, right. But, <laughs> but there are also kind of like training wheels, mm -hmm. right. With the idea that ultimately in performance, you know, whether it's as a musician up on stage or as an athlete or whatever else, we're probably not going to be hooked up to biofeedback and we're not going to have access to, to that. Mm. Right. But we learn the skills so that we can use it in the moment, whether or not we're hooked up to gadgets. Well, so you, you've used a word a couple of times and it's reminded me, I, I've been fortunate enough as, as a part of this consortium that, that we are in together. I've heard you present a bunch of times on, on your approach and, and how you think about things. And I know that in your work, you make a distinction between what's uncontrollable, what's controllable and what you can influence. And, and I really like that. I think that's such a unique take on all of this. And I noticed several times in what you were just saying, you use the word influence. And, and I know for you, that's a very intentional usage. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you'd be comfortable just sharing a little bit about how you think about those distinctions. Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I, early on in my training, I was drawn towards the cognitive behavioral model, right? Which tends to emphasize at least the traditional model that if we can control or suppress certain thoughts, then everything else will fall into place, you know, emotionally, physiologically, behaviorally. And, and I remember in my training, you know, as I was starting to work with clients, you know, being like, well, this all sounds really good, but it doesn't seem like it's that easy. Like real people don't seem wired that way. Um, and so I was kind of intuitively drawn towards 
uh, a mindfulness or acceptance-based approach. And then once I stumbled upon ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, you know, I, I, I really, I found something that really resonated for me. Um, and at the same time, there were elements of traditional CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy that, that really kind of resonated for me. And so I've worked over the years to kind of marry the best of both worlds in, in my own model, the, the RAMP model, reaching head mental performance. Um, and so the way I, I think about it, we have control over our behaviors, right? We might want control over how we think and the experience in our bodies and our emotions, but, but really I think we have influence over how we think and the experiences in our bodies, right? Sometimes we have a little bit of control. Sometimes we don't have much at all, right? So I think influence is a better word there. And then with emotional experiences, I tend to think that in the moment, while we might want to flip a switch or other people might want us to flip a switch, right? So that we're no longer frustrated or anxious. It's not that easy. I'm sure everybody listening has experienced times where somebody said, don't be frustrated or don't be anxious. And how do you feel? You know, or even if you say it to yourself, right? You feel that much more. And so I think it's really important to, to accept wherever we're at emotionally with the idea that, that it's temporary and something else will come along. Uh, but I also think that's part of where it's important to be mindful, right? Because as we tune in, it becomes easier to, to let the negative experiences come and go. And for that matter, the, the positive ones, right? Because when we try to cling to those, you know, paradoxically, they don't stick around for long, um, you know, but being mindful and accepting of, of emotions, it just makes all of it easier. Um, you know, whether it's, well, I don't know, I, I could go on and on about, <laughs> about all this theoretical stuff. I, I, I love it. Yeah, no, it's cool. And I, I think that's a really, it makes sense. I think that's a really good way to, to nuance what I think is, has become a bit of a cliche in our field, right? The, the you know, control your controllables, right? And, and I love that idea. I think there's a lot of appeal to it, but I know, you know, for myself, at least often a question is, well, like, what, what does that translate into? Right. And, and being very crystal clear about, well, these are what the controllables are. And here are the battles. I, I find myself using this language all the time with clients is, you know, here's the battles you can pick. Here's the battles you might want to pick, but it's going to end up either backfiring on you or being a waste of your energy because you just can't win that one. Um, and, and so I, I like the way you kind of break those things down and, and saying, well, if something's controllable or influenceable, maybe that's the best place to put your, your attention, which mm -hmm. I think is, is a big, again, part of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And, and with my model, there's, there's 12 skills that, that, you know, there's three per domain, right? I mentioned behaviors, you know, thought processes, physiology and emotions. So there's three skills per category. Um, and so we can dissect it a little bit further and be that much more specific about what we can control or, or not control. And, you know, the reality is that they all kind of fit together and, and there, there aren't necessarily always uh, nice, nice bold lines between them, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and something else I wanted to, to make sure that we talked about for a few minutes, because as, as we're talking about your model and talking about your, your work, um, you know, you, you've done, you've got a, a lot of personal background as well, but you've also done a lot of work in the sailing world. And that mm -hmm. isn't something we've had a chance to talk about much on our mm -hmm. podcast, we've gotten to cover a, a few different sports, but sailing hasn't been one of them. 
Um, and so I wonder if you could speak to that, just how, how some of this fits into sailing performance and, and some of the experiences and opportunities that, that you've had. I would be fascinated to hear about that. Yeah, you bet. And actually, I'm going to pull up a, a quote from a, a young sailor that I worked with at one point, if I can find it really quickly. So a young sailor that I was working with put it really well in reference to the breathing that we were working on at the beginning, right? He said, after sticking with this breathing regimen for several weeks, he said, your mind is in the fog. Breathing makes it clear. It helps you focus on the immediate important tasks and let superfluous tasks and thoughts go. It's been life-changing almost in my sailing. Breathing, it's like laser focus. It gets rid of all the clutter. You know, I thought, you know, young kid, but man, he, he really hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, in my work with, with sailors, I'm using a lot of the same tools that I use with everybody else that I work with, uh, you know, a slew of athletes and other kinds of performers, um, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, one thing I love about working with, with sailing athletes is that I have my own background there, right? Like I was a competitive sailor. I sailed at one of the, the top colleges in the country, um, you know, at a time where we were really stacked too. We probably, we had, I think, 15 people on that St. Mary's College team who could have been all Americans had we gone anywhere else, but there were only going to be four opportunities in a given year to be all American, right? And, and so we would duke it out every day in practice. And you know, I think practice was far more intense for a lot of us than any uh, regatta competitions that people were going to on weekends. Mm. Um, well, that sounds so like fun. <laughs> it was super fun. It was yeah. super fun, you know, um, and and it, it, it continues on. Right. Like I've had breaks from sailing at times as I focus on career and family, uh, but I keep coming back to it. Um, you know, and I live in Annapolis, Maryland now, you know, one of the sailing capitals in our country and uh, if not the world. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of fun stuff for sure. Um, but I also, you know, with, with my coaching background, I feel like that, that helps too. Um, you know, I coached at a pretty high level. Um, and it, you know, I think, I think all of that contributes to whether I'm working with sailors or coaches, um, you know, having some insights that other, sports psychologists might not necessarily be able to bring to the table, right? Where like, I know nuanced tactical situations, um, uh, you know, where we can talk about, uh, you know, applying mental imagery, for instance, to like a crowded lure mark rounding and, you know, what can quickly become a foreign language for, for other people. Um, you know, I can be right there in the weeds with people talking about equipment or tactics or strategy. Um, and it's fun. It's super fun. Um, and, you know, and at the same time, a lot of, a lot of my work with sailors, um, while I'm able to dive into the weeds with them on that kind of thing, you know, I'm always conscious of roles, right? So if, you know, for instance, if, if I'm working with a young opti kid and opti is a, kind of small boat that, that young kids sail in this country and internationally. Um, you know, I, I might weave in my two cents all over the place about strategy and tactics, and 
maybe boat setup, probably actually less boat setup because I didn't spend that much time in that boat or, or coaching that boat. Um, and so I defer to coaches and certainly like with my Olympians or America's cup folks, um, I definitely defer to coaches. And, and so my role often morphs a little bit where, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into the weeds if we need to often in collaboration with coaches. Um, but it often becomes more centered on communication, you know, and it's whether, whether we're talking about communication, uh, on the boat in, you know, in the heat of the moment, like how do we manage to quickly convey what we need to in a way where, you know, back to the inverted U, where we aren't sending our partner to the far right end of the, that inverted U, um, or, you know, how do we manage to communicate what we need to between races when we have a little bit more time, but still maybe being mindful of, you know, our own self-regulation and, and being a bonus to our, our partner or partners. Um, or on land, you know, like making sure that, uh, for instance, a debrief with a coach uh, has boundaries on it, you know, so that there's a, there's a clear agenda. Um, roles are known and the dialogue is, is always one that has uh, purpose and where we, we weave in empathy, even during moments when empathy is really hard. Mm. So yeah, that, that's some of what I do with, with sailing. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I, I love working with all my athletes, but you know, there is, there is something to be said for that uh, unique understanding that I bring to the table with sailing. Yeah. And I, I mean, admittedly, I wish I knew more about the sport. I think my my experience ended when I won a, uh, a sailing award at camp when I was about twelve years old. So I, I wish okay. I I knew more. But hey, I had I that was my that was my peak. I have a little bit of experience. Um, but I would imagine too, and I, I think you spoke to this just a little bit, like with talking about communication. You know, a sport like that has such unique mental challenges associated with it. You know, are, are there any that, that you tend to see come up a lot? Like, I mean, there's, there's risk associated with the sport of sailing or, you know, that, that there are, I'm sure like the, I almost think about almost like the challenge that, that an Olympic athlete might face where you train for a long time for these one or two events that are so massive. And how do you deal with those kinds of pressures? Uh, So maybe that's naive of me. I don't know if that's what you actually find, but those were two things that, that I was thinking about. Yeah. Um. I, my, my brain went all kinds of places thinking of different <laughs> clients that I've worked with as, as you brought up all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is risk, uh, you know, most of the time it's very managed risk. Uh, and so there's little risk at all, but sure. I mean, a- accidents uh, occur and, um, you know, I, I have sometimes worked with folks in, in the aftermath of, of accidents happening um, to help them, uh, reach a better place. And, you know, and that's kind of steering away from the performance side of things and, and really making sure that people are in a good spot in terms of mental health. Um, but certainly, you know, how our mental health is plays a big role in how our performance is, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I, I often, I try to make the distinction between mental health work and mental performance work in this way. Right. I often say that, if we're doing psychotherapy, the goal is improve mental health and maybe as a byproduct, performance improves. But if we're doing mental performance coaching, the goal is improve performance and maybe as a byproduct, mental health improves. Mm-hmm. 
right? Uh, so I, even though there's a big gray area in the middle, that's the distinction I often try to make. Um, you know, with, with Olympians too, right? Like a, a lot of these guys and gals, you know, they do it during a segment of their life where they're young. Um, but it's a, it's a time when, you know, their peers are all establishing careers and starting families and, and maybe they're doing some of that along the way too. Um, but the more they're doing that other stuff, uh, the more they can feel pulled in multiple directions too. And so, you know, sometimes they find it easier just to have the blinders on for their Olympic pursuits. Um, and, and that can be hard. It can be lonely. Um, and, and especially when you put so many eggs in that basket and then hopefully at the end of four years or eight years or 12 years, right. Depending on how many rounds of it you do, you know, hopefully you're able to bring home a, a medal. You know, I think that's, that's everybody's goal. They aren't just there for the fun of it, even though that they, they, there might be an intrinsic love. Um, but oftentimes, you know, they, they might come home unsuccessful. And, and so, you know, how do we transition into taking whatever was learned in that context and applying it to other parts of life? Because there are really valuable lessons that, that happen in an Olympic campaign whether or not it brings home a medal. Yeah, well, I know I've already seen a couple articles. We were recording this at a time where the Winter Olympics just ended. Obviously that's not, sailing's not in the Winter Olympics, um, but I've seen a couple articles already appearing about, you know, kind of dealing with the coming off that Olympic high and how to athletes mm -hmm. recover. And um, especially if there's disappointment in there, I think that's a very real challenge that, that we face as providers if we're working with, with that population. Yeah, it, it can feel on some level like none of this was worth it. And yet I, I think that's part of where some, you know, on the one hand, processing of emotions and meeting somebody where they're at is important, you know, letting them grieve. Uh, and at the same time, ultimately working towards a little bit of a reframe and understanding how maybe all of this is applicable to other things in life. Yeah. I think it's clear anyone listening to you can tell that that you're on an ethics committee, right? Like how you talk about this and and your explanation about um, you know psychotherapy versus um, mental skills training, and um, I so appreciate that. Again, I, I have the opportunity to learn from you often, and I think you do such a good job of practicing what you preach with ethics and. Thank you. I try um, you know. to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're an excellent resource too. I, I know when I have ethical questions, you're, you're the first guy that I go to, to be like, Tim, help me. Um, how do I deal with this? Um, and, and I know something that's become, you know, near and dear to our heart with our MSP Institute. I think it comes up in just about every podcast recording that we do. And, and we've written about it so much. It's the first chapter of our book is this idea of the mental training paradox and, and some of the barriers that have historically existed to, to people taking on mental training, you know, to, to athletes taking on mental training. And, and I think the other thing we've done is we've identified what are the main things that support the mental training paradox. And the one we hit on with almost all of our guests is the felt lack of time, right? That, that there's just not time, that other things are prioritized. But with your ethics background and, um, and, and even some of the things that you've already mentioned today, I think 
I wanted to ask you about the, the sort of second thing or, or a second thing that we've identified as maintaining this mental training paradox, which is this knowledge gap, right? This, this idea that, um, you know, there may be demand for sports psychology services, but how do we find people who are, are appropriate, right? And, and I think mm -hmm. that's been a tension that's existed throughout um, our young fields history, right? I mean, going back to like the yeah, 1980s. I think for as like long that. as you and I have been involved, right? We've seen debates about this kind of thing. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain on that for a moment. I know it's a bit of a zag from what we were just talking about, but again, I think any, anyone who listens to you talk for a little while can probably hear your ethics coming out in what you're saying. And I'm just, I think of anybody, you, you could speak about this in, in a really yeah. interesting way. Some of what we're talking about boils down to, in the ethics codes, competence, right? Standards of competence. And, you know, I, I think when we're clearly in the psychotherapy domain or in the mental performance coaching domain, it becomes easier, right? We, we know, okay, I've been trained as a psychotherapist, whether it's I'm a licensed psychologist or a licensed clinical professional counselor or a licensed clinical social worker or whatever, right? I know this is in line with my training. I've had supervised hours. I'm ready to go here. Um, or, you know, if it's mental performance coaching, right? Like, okay, I've, you know, done what I needed to do in terms of seeking out coursework and dotting my I's and crossing my T's and getting, you know, mentored hours towards this credential in our country of the CMPC, the Certified Mental Performance Consultant through ASP, Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Um, you know, and so if I'm working with an athlete on goal setting or mental imagery um, and, you know, they have, you know, what, what feel like pretty confined, normal levels of performance anxiety, uh, you know, they, they're living functional lives or their relationships are great, you know, okay, I'm clearly in my lane here. Where it gets confusing is when it's, it's in the gray, right? And you know, real people, right? And athletes are among the group, <laughs> the larger group people. of real people. <laughs> athletes are people, right? Um, the, real people have problems, right? And, and so what's an everyday problem versus, you know, what is a, you know, mental health concern? Um, that can be hard to distinguish sometimes. And, you know, and so some of my bias, which I, I try to to own, um, given my training, right, is, is I think that somebody with mental health training, especially if they've gone the distance and pursued like CMPC credentials or, or whatever else internationally, um, you know, I feel like that person is set up well enough in terms of competence to address a range of issues, right? Um, and, and, and I think, you know, a CMPC who has done their homework and they've studied, um, for instance, suicidality and, and they, they really know the warning signs and, and they make a point of referring out early and often and, and maybe working in conjunction with somebody who is a licensed therapist, right? 
you know, they, they can, they can do good work there. But my bias is, is such that, you know, I think that the mental health training combined with CMPC, I, I think it's the optimal route. Um, you know, and, and I, that's not to say, right. I have so much respect for, for many colleagues I have out there who have pursued the CMPC only and, and the efforts that they've put in. And, and some of them have gone the extra mile where, I, I refer to many of them easily in a heartbeat, right? Um, uh, but part of why I have that bias, it's not only because that's the route that, that I took myself. I have heard some folks in the field who I have a lot of respect for who are CMPC only, right? Who have taken that sports science route. They didn't go down the mental health route at all. Um, I've heard some of them say, you know, in retrospect, if I did it all over again, I'd go the mental health route, you know, uh, and, and they'll, you know, and this is a select few people that I'm thinking of who will acknowledge this. Um, but when they're being really frank, they'll say it, they'll say, I've managed to establish my route. Um, you know, if, if this university that I work for pulled the plug on me today, I'm not sure what I'd do next. It sure would be a whole lot easier if I had licensure, you know, so there's that practical piece. Uh, but then there's also the skill set, right? I think I think somebody who is licensed um, is better equipped to to catch the you know the just barely skimming the surface kind of warning signs that you know maybe somebody's experienced suicidality, you know, and maybe it wasn't even recently. Maybe it was during lockdown during the pandemic, but they end up asking the right questions. You know, I've experienced this myself, right? Where where you realize somebody has been suicidal and, and maybe they aren't currently, or maybe they are currently. And either way, you really want that to be part of your understanding of this person so that heaven forbid a, a tragedy never happens. Right. Um, and, and even walking away from suicidality for a second, even if somebody just has a deeper level of suffering, they've never had a thought of killing themselves. Maybe they never will. I feel like it's easier to help people on all levels, right? Whether it's hitting the ball better and more consistently or just being in a better place feeling wise and in your relationships day to day. I think it's easier to help people on that front with that mental health training. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. I, I know, again, it's something we've talked a lot about and um, I really appreciate your perspectives. It's, it's something we, we give a lot of thought to um, you know, as you know, both Tim and I, uh, Tim Pino and I are, are licensed psychologists, but, um, you know, I'm a CMPC, he's not like, like we, we think a lot about the sort of the ethics of all of this, um, and how we do sports psychology work, but also how we do the mindfulness work, the MSPE work. Um, and there's a whole nother level of competence too, with being able to deliver mindfulness-based interventions and, and familiarity with that. Um, and I would think similarly, like with biofeedback, right, that there's mm -hmm. specific credentials for biofeedback. And, and so I, I think, and I, I know we're, we're short on time, but, but why I think this is an especially important and timely topic is we're living in a really exciting time in our field mm -hmm. where, where there's a lot of demand and, and we're seeing high profile positions come available with all kinds of organizations, with leagues, with teams. I think, thankfully, there's more awareness and interest in mental health promotion amongst athletes and performance promotion amongst athletes. But I'm still seeing a lot of 
like I said, like sort of this knowledge gap, like people not necessarily knowing what to look for. And I think, you know, I know we've talked about this in our MaxApp capacity a little bit, but trying to be ambassadors of that, right? Mm-hmm. Not, not that we're trying to exclude people or, or say something's better than something else. I really appreciate the nuance that you're trying to convey, um, but the importance but for of the that, general right? public, right? We right. want people to know what they're getting and, and what kinds of services can be provided from that person and, and what the limits are of those services too. Right, exactly. And, and that's been such a huge, I, I probably a lot of people who listen to this are, are in sports psych, but, you know, just knowing the history of the field, um, you know, it's, it's really struggled with that for a long time. And I think it's, it's trying, it's made a lot of progress in terms of its ability to legitimize itself. But I feel like this is a really big issue that's emerging right now with, with the surge in demand that we've seen over the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would just put in a quick plug for some of the directories out there. They're, they're really useful. Uh, you know, um, you know, the, the psychology today directory, right. You can, you can put filters and, and figure out somebody in your region who has a licensure that you're look, looking for in a given specialty. Um, I'm not so sure about their sport performance filter. Uh, Cause I think any clinician can just check off whatever box they want to be included <laughs> on that directory. Um, you know, that said, the, the USOPC has a, a directory as well, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, they have two now, right? So they have one for sport performance and for mental health. That's right. That's right. So they have their sports psychology registry. Um, and I think Karen Kogan at USOPC can be contacted for that. And then they, they have their mental health registry, which actually has a, a dashboard where you can go locate people and, and look them up on your own via their website. Um, you know, and then ASP Association for Applied Sports Psychology has its directory of CMPCs, um, you know, those, the performance oriented folks, um, you know, and, and that's going to include people who are licensed and people who are, are not licensed. Uh, and, and as I said before, you know, everybody brings something to the table, but we just want to be aware of, you know, in the first place, what is it that we want and be honest with yourself about what you want, right? I, I have had people um, come, come to me saying they want performance when once they sit down, it becomes clear that maybe they want something beyond performance, really focused on mental health. And so, you know, I think that's, that's all well and good when you seek somebody out who's licensed. Um, but if, if that might be you, right, then, then maybe you really got to make a point of seeking out somebody who's licensed. So, yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for mentioning those, those directories. I think that's helpful. And, I guess as we wrap up here, um, which I wrap up what I think has been a really interesting discussion. Um, I know you have a website. I know Reaching Ahead does. Do you, do you want to mention for our listeners ways that they can get more information about you and your practice? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my website is reachingahead.com. Um, you can reach out to us at info at reachingahead.com. Um, and my, my practice manager will get back to you really quickly and, and can set up meetings with me. Um, and, and yeah, there, you know, there's a lot there about my practice. If you, if you want to learn more about me or check out resources uh, that I have available right there. Um, you know, I also have a, a self-paced training platform for, for sailing and for other sports. Uh, and the website for that is reaching, I think it's reachingahead.thinkific.com. 
So great. Um, and I just want to take a, a second and let people know how they can connect with us with the MSP Institute. Um, we also have a website, which is www.mindfulsportperformance.org. Uh, we also have a, a Facebook page for our institute. Um, our podcast has, has some resources as well. Um, we have a companion Instagram page at mindful underscore sport underscore podcast. And we also have a YouTube channel where we do post all of our exercises that begin our episodes. So hopefully Tim will give us his blessing to post uh, what, what he led. And, and so Absolutely. we've got a great library that we're building um, from, from ourselves and our wonderful guests. So if you're looking for some, some free resources, please check that out on YouTube. Um, and then if you're interested in following me, Dr. Keith Kaufman on Twitter, my handle is at mindfulsportdoc. Um, and then a quick plug as well for our book, Mindful Sport Performance Enhancement, Mental Training for Athletes and Coaches. And we are always very excited to get reviews for our book and for our podcast, if you're so inclined. Um, and I just want to take one, one quick moment and thank our team. Uh, we miss Tim Pinot and, and hopefully he'll be back soon. But thank you to Tim for all of his work on the podcast and to our colleague, Carol Glass, uh, for everything that she does and our great producer, Taylor Brown of Enduro Mind. Um, so thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you again, uh, Tim Herzog, for, for joining us. And we My will- My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been sure. fun. Sure, absolutely. I'm glad it worked out. Um, and we'll, we'll see everyone next time. <laughs>